Hi, welcome back to Unlocking the Vault with Dan Lindstead. I'm uh, Cindy Meyerson, your co-host here. We're uh, glad to be back with you. Tonight, we're going to be talking about sort of the creativity aspects uh, that may be concerns perhaps with the architect's uh, when it comes to putting in a data vault and maybe this fear of losing creative license, if you will, from uh, as a result of the standards uh, inside data vault. So let's just talk about that a bit, Dan. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of pushback on data vault and the pushback that comes, I think, is misplaced. Data vault does have standards. And when we teach data vault to practitioners, we attempt to enforce that or burn that into their heads and say, look, you got to follow the standards or it won't work. And that is, that is mostly true. But there's also this forgotten, long lost, forgotten treasure where you can have freedom. And so today we're going to uncover from a business level where some of those freedoms are. And then we'll touch on also the standards part and how that works. We're definitely going to focus on the business discussion. So hang with us here. So Cindy, you've made some statements earlier about in past discussions with me about pushback, implementing a data vault. And I can say firsthand, I've heard almost every argument under the sun. Why do people push back on data vault having standards? What kind of places do you think they get angry about? And can you elaborate a little bit on, on those ideas? Sure. I think uh, to a certain extent, there's a bit of fear of breaking the typical approach that's been used for years. But I think with regard to the creative spirit, I think, I believe that the standards appear to be an imposition or a too rigid approach to the creative nature that some architects would like to be able to explore in their career. I think sometimes people just get afraid of doing the same thing over and over again. We especially see that with programmers, that they want a little creative space perhaps. And so when you introduce standards, like as Data Vault has, we tend to focus on those standards, which are critical. But as you said, we forget the best practices, which means as long as your best practices fall in line with your standards, there is room for creativity. I have found that Data Vault is actually extremely flexible. Those are things that I think programmers may fear. And I think as a CDO or a CTO, maybe they there's concern there about attrition, losing good architects because they feel like they're too constricted in the work that's got to be done. And I think that we owe them an explanation of where they do have creative license. Yeah, thanks for that. And a couple of examples came to mind while we were talking. So the first thing I want to draw out is this difference between best practices and standards. And you mentioned it. They really should be working together. If you hear someone in your company say best practices versus standard, run as fast as you can or move them off to what I call a Siberian project. Or if they're open-minded, do the best thing, train them. But that's not the correct statement. That's my favorite piece there is to train them, but and hopefully they're open-minded. But best practices should work with standards. It's not an us versus them or a best practices versus standards thing. And a lot of people like to make it into that. And it's just not the case. There are some differences between best practices and standards, and there are some similarities. Standards are proven tried and true methods or techniques or designs or architectures that just work. And best practices are things where you've got some creative freedom. So one of the examples here is like driving a car. Everybody I think knows who's listening to the podcast knows what an automobile or a car is. 
or a truck. And in the UK, they call it a, a lorry, right? So when you drive a car, one of the things that every car has is an engine. So there's a standard that says, if it's a car, it's got to have an engine. If it's a car, it should have, or has got to have a steering wheel. Otherwise you can't control the direction of the car. If it's a car, it should have brakes. Otherwise you can't stop the car. And that's why the brakes are a standard. That's why the engine is a standard. That's why the driving or the steering wheel is a standard. And even blinkers. Now, blinkers aren't used in some parts of the world, but all auto manufacturers create them and they're part of the standard of the car. So if they're there, you should use them. Now, let's talk about a best practice in the car example. A best practice might be something like when you get to choose to use the blinkers. And hopefully you use the blinkers all the time. In fact, you're, if you go for a driving test in most countries and you don't use blinkers to change lanes, they'll mark you down for it. Doesn't mean you fail the driving test unless you fail other parts of it, but you should be using the blinkers to notify drivers. Now, I've been in some countries where I watch the use of blinkers and just call me weird and strange. I do these things because I'm a data guy, right? But, and, and in some countries, you better not turn your blinker on or you're going to lose your opportunity to change lanes completely. It's almost like a death sentence. And hopefully it's not that bad, but that's the idea. So you've got this best practice that says you should use your blinkers, but you're not going to die in most countries if you don't. So that's the whole deal. But what happens if you try to drive your car and there's a, the car is designed with a standard for four wheels, but there's only three wheels mounted on the car. Is it a good idea to drive a car with three mounted wheels and a place for a fourth wheel that doesn't exist? And I would argue, no, it's not a good idea because you could very well kill yourself. So your life's in danger if you break that standard, right? If you drive the car in spite of, if you move something into production in our world and in spite of the standard being busted, I and I hate to say this, but I worked at Lockheed and you guys have heard some of these stories already. At Lockheed, we actually had to deploy data warehouses with very low tolerance. And I talked about this in one of the earliest podcasts. And those low tolerances for failures was where we used our Six Sigma techniques to manage failures in production, including data failures or bad data, as they say. And the end result of breaking a standard is potentially people die. So we don't want to do that. That's just something we need to stay away from. But, you know, people, they hear data vault and they think rigid standard standards. Yes, there is some of that, but we do have best practices as well. And so the architects have some level of freedoms when it comes to the best practices. But also be aware, it doesn't mean the architects have carte blanche. They can't just go out and create whatever they want, whenever they want. The caveat here is that the enterprise itself needs good governance, and therefore the architects should pay attention to establishing, you got it, enterprise-based best practices. But then, of course, you want this distributed model where you can send out the best practices. And these best practices, they shouldn't be stagnant. They shouldn't be sitting in concrete and forever there and never changed. They should be growing and changing with the needs of the organization as the needs of the organization evolve, as the architects learn things. But you do need enterprise governance practices over the best practices and over the architecture and the designs that are created so that you can then distribute them to, to use today's term, the data mesh teams. And of course, the architects might get mad over standards, but you know, think about all the creativity that you have with 
quote unquote best practices. And these best practices should be melded and meshed with all of the wonderful things that the corporation is doing. So when we talk about some of this stuff, we talk about creativity at the best practice level. And we do have suggested best practices with the data vault. But again, that's where you have freedom as a customer, as a business user, as, a, as an architect, as an analyst. You've got freedom to create those best practices. And creativity is needed, especially with complex data sets and especially pre-processing of images and video and audio, including documents and JSON formats. And one particular place that's one of my favorites is taxonomies and business definitions. That's an all important stuff. But we talk about using, for instance, video. We talk about using audio and documents, which is coming to the forefront. If you aren't already doing that today, it's a significant competitive advantage. But the architect is responsible for designing and creating the process of how the data is understood or labeled or categorized. And Cindy, you had a security example, which I thought was extremely relevant about security and video that maybe the business analyst could hear where some of these best practices could be modified. Do you care to elaborate? Yeah. What I had been thinking when we were talking about this whole idea of creativity was from a business perspective, if I'm a business person and my business is facility security, for example, my interest in, in, in the data may fall in line with the fact that I have surveillance cameras running on a particular facility. And I have multiple surveillance cameras running, multiple video run, and the cameras are pointing to very specific geographic locations across the facility. And if a customer claims that someone breached the perimeter, if you will, of the facility, and let's just say they are filing a, a negligence suit against my, my security company, one of the things I want to do very quickly is to go back, reference the video that was covering the perimeter, and then pull that video back and review it. So from a creativity perspective, the architects understand, your data architects understand that the information, I would say, that defines a video, what we might call metadata, would describe the camera, perhaps the date and the time range that the video recording was running, the geographic location or the vector that it's pointed at, things like that. And what we would call sort of the descriptive data around the video capture. That might be data that's well-structured for what we would consider a relational database. Whereas the video itself, what I'm interested in as the business is the content of the video. I want to see, did someone breach the perimeter? Did we miss that? And so when I'm, when my architect is designing the system, they need to be creative and understand, I need to be able to search the system using the date and time, the more structured type data. And when I, and when I find the video that I'm looking for, I need to be able to retrieve that video and play it. Video data, if you will, uh, video files are not necessarily conducive to something that would be inside of a database. And there are specialized processes and programs that are going to pre-process that video data so I can detect any kind of change that's occurring across a perimeter line. So there are a number of things that can be done for an architect. They can actually design the system and split the data 
put the data files, the video files on one platform, processing through one particular specialized application, design the key, if you will, the date and time, the video and things like that, pull that data together. There's some creative license in how that data is stored, how I may split, how they may want to split it across, how they want to span different what we'd say platforms from a relational database to perhaps a, an S3 bucket somewhere in the cloud, some kind of, of a file store. So there's creativity on how they lay out the design of our ability to retrieve that data. There's a number of things that can be done. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings to mind a couple of other things for me as well. That example illustrates the use of unstructured or semi-structured data in a video format. And one of the things I thought of was, look, you've got AI and ML or a data scientist there and the architect and the data scientist now have to work together. And that's a lot of creativity to figure out what parts of the video are they interested in and can they mechanically extract the metadata about the part of the video that they might be interested in. And furthermore, can an AI or an ML routine be coded so that it detects a breach on the edge of the facility or whatever the case may be. So there's lots of flexibility there, but in particular, I wanna come back to this idea that people get mad about stifling creativity and using data vault and all these standards that I have to adhere to. And I gotta say, it really doesn't have anything to do with data vault. It has everything to do with enterprise analytics or enterprise data warehousing. I don't care what you call it, Enterprise BI, that whole process, it doesn't matter whether using Data Vault or not, you need to understand or should understand the pieces between or the differences and the similarities between best practices and standards. And you're going to need standards and you're going to need governance at some level. Standards help you with agility. Standards help you with running the same process over and over again. Standards help you with quality. Standards help you achieve your goals better, faster, cheaper on a technical level or on a resource level. That's where standards help if they are followed. And of course, the inverse is true. If they're not followed, then the system can fall down. Just think about just-in-time manufacturing for automobiles. If someone says, we're not going to follow a standard for this one machine, all of a sudden, you've turned that machine back into a manually maintained process. If that machine is sitting in the assembly line, then the whole assembly line slows down. And then before you know it, because it's a manually maintained process, the human misses something and quality falls off. So you can use all these examples, but I want to impress upon the business users that are listening to this podcast. It's so critical that you don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater because if you just say, I'm not going to use data vault because there are too many standards because my team says it'll stifle the creativity, then you shouldn't be doing business analytics. You shouldn't be doing enterprise analytics at all because it isn't about just the data vault. It's just when you see and talk and work with the data vault methodology, what you learn is that the standards are part of the front and center components and they have to be involved in the architecture and the design and the governance along with the best practices that comes with that. I've got one more example on that in terms of standards that are two more examples, really, that, that are required for strict compliance. So everyone knows what water is coming out of a faucet, for example, clean water that you would drink. Now, the standard would be if you want to drink water, you need some form of a container. 
whether it's your hand in a small cup-like shape, which doesn't hold very much, or whether it's a, a container with a, a round circular shape that has looks like a glass or a square shape. You basically need some walls to contain the liquid and you need a bottom to hold the liquid. If you don't have the walls bottom, you can't hold the liquid, right? If you've got a tube with no bottom in it, you can fill it with water, but the minute you pick the tube up off the counter or up off the floor, the bottom's gone, the water all comes crashing out, right? So this is the standard. The standard to hold a liquid is some form of container is you need a bottom and sides at a minimum. And then if you wanna stop the liquid from spilling when you tip over the container, you need a lid and some fashion to close the lid. The standard is, are the floors and the walls and possibly the lid. The best practices tell you or the architectural freedom give you the ability to change the design. I use a bucket, for example, to wash my car. I don't drink out of a bucket, at least I don't, maybe some people do, and that's okay. There are some parts of the world where that's the only thing they have. But in, in most of the world, we have cups and glasses and mugs and different kinds of containers. And this is where architectural freedom comes in. In Germany, they have beer steins, right, for beer. So beer is a liquid, right? But you get the idea. And then they somebody came up in the 1800s, I think it was, don't quote me on this because I didn't look it up. But somebody came up with a bright idea of keeping the flies out of the beer stein and put a lid on the beer stein with a handle that you can open to take a drink and then it automatically closes via gravity. So you've got architectural designs, you've got engineering, you've got best practices that all need good governance, good governance. And you want to decide those for your ways of working across the enterprise. And so that all the teams across the enterprise have access to these best practices and can understand them and are trained in them in the ways of working. That too helps with agility. It helps with quality. It helps with productivity if those things are trained. And you see a lot of that coming around now with this whole terminology around data mesh and distributed teams and all of that kind of thing. And that's great. And yes, you should be using data mesh and data vault together. But to get back to the point, you don't want to just say data vault's bad because there are standards that we have to adhere to. Now, the flip side there is I want to talk about some strict compliance, and I want to talk about maybe another case that might hit more close to home. So the standards, when they're adhered to, can mostly be automated to varying degrees, okay? And especially in data vault landscape, we have engineered these standards for processing data, for moving data, for structuring data, for landing data, storing data, and turning data into information. Although most of turning data into information are suggested best practices. And then from there, you can modify those. But let's talk about the analogy for accounting and closing the books and meeting regulatory policies. The company has flexibility to do a cash or accrual based accounting. This is where you got flexibility. You can choose what kind of accounting methods you want to apply. But in terms of closing the books, in terms of regulatory, in terms of good processing debit credit based systems, there are accounting rules and regulations that are most, most dictated by accounting financial, or excuse me, federal government agencies around the world that say this is these are the accounting standards you must adhere to if you want to do business in this country. In that particular case, what do you think would happen if someone broke the accounting standards 
and change the outcomes on the numbers on the bottom line. So you break the standards, you need to look good in orange, is what Cindy said. <laughs> she gave me that quote earlier, and it's actually really true. Orange is the jumpsuit for jail in some cases. But so you, you break the standards, you go to jail, right, in terms of accounting. So no one wants to break the accounting standards. In fact, quite the opposite. They want to adhere to them as best they can. And yes, mistakes are made. It happens. We're all human. But with standards in place, you can find out where the mistake was made. And there's some leniency in discovering how to correct it, right? So as long as you correct it, as long as you discover what the problem caused the problem, then usually you're let off the hook. And sometimes it's with fines and other times it's not. It just depends on the circumstances. But the best practices around how you do your accounting or the processes under which things get accounted for and how you organize your books, those are all best practices and business-related discussions that happen outside of the standards. I'm going to try to wrap this up a little bit, and then we have one technical-related discussion to throw on the end of this here in case you're interested. But in terms of the way this works, at the end of the day, you don't want to simply throw out Data Vault because there's all these standards that you have to adhere to. I said it during the podcast, I'll say it again. If this is your thinking, you don't belong in building business analytics or enterprise data warehouses. You shouldn't be touching this stuff because regardless of whether you use Data Vault or not, you will have to follow some form of standards and you will have to follow some form of best practices. Otherwise, it just won't work, especially in any enterprise made up of more than one person in IT, right? One person in IT gets to make all the decisions and they typically follow their own standards and ways of working. And that's just how it goes. So I'll leave you with those thoughts. Cindy, anything else to add to this? Any thoughts that occur to you? The only other thing I was thinking is you were talking about governance, good governance and compliance and things of that nature is from a business perspective, it's help you control cost. And we've talked an awful lot in the past about the, the exorbitant costs that will overwhelm an analytics solution or a data warehouse. And one way the business can con control cost is to ensure that standards are being adhered to. The other thing, I think we were going to talk a little bit about like a, a sort of a technical best practices type of scenario. So from a technical perspective, one of the standards we have is that a data vault, we want to make sure that we are integrating on business concepts. So as we're working with the business, we basically are looking for, when we talk about a hub in data vault, we're talking about a unique list of business keys. And a hub should represent a business concept. And what happens when you have two different source systems, and we could say customer information, and uh, let's just say customer coming from system A is a single column. Maybe it's a string data type. And we have uh, a, a customer identified in system B that is made up of two different columns. It's still the business key. So the idea of integration is that both customers should logically integrate to a single hub. And the way we can do that is on the recommended best practice from Data Vault would be to build basically two hubs. One hub would have the single column business key coming from system A, and the other hub would have two columns in it representing the two-part business key coming from system B. 
and then we would integrate that data further downstream. However, there is also another approach that we have talked about in the past where you could have a single column string for the business key where you can pull the data from system A and represent the business key in its single column. And then the data coming in from system B, you could concatenate, take the two columns and concatenate them together and store them into the single string column in the integrated hub. That is a different approach. There is There are consequences, if you will, or performance impacts potentially with the latter where you're building out a single column and integrating a couple of different columns into a single hub structure. But the point is you have a choice. And what we always encourage people to do is test it. We build, there's a question on how you're modeling, build both concepts of the model, load the data and test it to see what is more performant. So there are options out there and it's flexible, uh, even in a technical perspective. You're not breaking the standard of integration, which is a data vault guarantee. We want to integrate on our business keys. So we can talk about this more in detail, but there's a high level description of some of the technical aspects that people get into where they don't realize that they have choices in design when they actually do. Absolutely. And thank you for that example. I know just in the remaining few minutes here, that reminds me of a lot of things that people ask me all the time. One specific thing is, wait a minute, you say the data vault model has to be physical. We've always said that the data vault itself is based on concept and logical models and business concepts. And this is an illustration where the business concept is has a unique identifier called the business key. And this all relates to the business terminology and business taxonomies. And that's really the whole point for flexibility. And we've always said, well, at least I've always said in the classes I've taught for the last 25, 30 years, look, you may need to change your physical model to meet the needs of the platform that you're operating on. And in the case of Cassandra, we did that. We would pull elements together in the physical model that you don't see in the logical model that are split apart in the logical model. And we did that for MongoDB as well. So just some examples about standards and best practices, where the best practice in this case was to leverage the technology's best practices and the technology's performance capabilities by changing the physical structure of the physical store, where the data vault standard really is to focus on the logical and conceptual layers. And we're going to see more of that going forward in the technologies that are currently being produced. With that, I'm Dan Linstead. And I'm Cindy Meyerson. We hope you've enjoyed it. Take care.